Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, ready or not, 2024 is here, and we here at Breaking Points are already thinking of ways we can up our game for this critical election. We rely on our premium subs to expand coverage, upgrade the studio, add staff, give you guys the best independent coverage that is possible. If you like what we're all about, it just means the absolute world to have your support. But enough with that, let's get to the show. So we got a new report from Axios about how President Biden is a little different in private than maybe the public persona, the carefully crafted public persona. Let's put this up on the screen. Um, Maureen Dowd actually tweeted this piece out with some of the choice language that he apparently directs at AIDS. God damn it, how the F don't you know this? Don't effing bullshit me and get the F out of here. Mm. Let me read a little bit from the piece. The headline is Old Yeller, Biden's Private Fury. In public, President Biden likes to whisper to make a point. In private, he's prone to yelling. Behind closed doors, Biden has such a quick trigger temper that some aides try to avoid meeting alone with him. Some take a colleague almost as a shield against a solo blast. They can then go on to describe the language that Maureen Dowd included here. Why it matters. The private eruptions paint a more complicated picture of Biden as a manager and president than the image as a kindly uncle who loves aviator sunglasses and ice cream. They also go on to say, this is kind of interesting, some Biden aides think the president would be better off occasionally displaying his temper in public as a way to assuage voter concerns that the 80-year-old president is disengaged and too old for office. Senior and lower level aides alike can be in Biden's line of fire. Quote, no one is safe, said one administration official. Your thoughts, Sagar? Uh, I gotta be honest. This made me like Biden. I mean, I respect it. I, I personally, I saw a lot of pearl clutching around this. Like, oh my gosh, I can't believe he treats people this way, blah, blah, blah. I mean, you know, I know a lot of people, uh, politicians also, people who work for them, people who care about their work get passionate. So, I mean, the other thing is the only way that this would be a uh, criticism is if this was like a doddering old man thing. Mm. But by all accounts, old accounts of him as a candidate back in 1988 describe the same temper. Yeah, so he's it seems always been to be, a sort of like 
cranky, volcanic right. asshole to his staff. Right. I mean, <laughs> I, I, look, which president hasn't been? I mean, uh, the one. In fact, the only guy who was ever really nice to his staff was Jimmy Carter. So it's like it kind of tells you that there. I think you have to be a raging narcissist to be president. I don't think it's really possible to do it otherwise. Um, and I think that people who all work at the highest level and who care a lot about their work often behave in this manner. I'm not saying it's necessarily a good thing, but you know, a lot of these staff, like they also know what they're getting into. So I don't know. I saw a lot, a lot of annoying curl clutching, curl, pearl clutching mm. around this, and it uh, frankly annoyed me. I'm like, yeah, it's like the most stressful job in the world. What do you expect to happen? Especially whenever you are unable to have public outbursts in the same way. I also do agree that uh, going out and kind of showing this kind of temperament makes you, frankly, a lot more relatable. Remember um, when he whenever. had that look, yeah, look fat, fat moment on the trail? People loved and that. And people did kind yeah. of like yeah. him. They played, like, challenge that guy right. to push-ups or whatever. Yeah. He called that one uh, young voter a what was it, lying dog-faced yeah, lying dog post, lying dog-faced pony soldier. I still don't know what that means, but... Um, okay, so I would not ever justify this sort of um, treatment of individuals who work for you, your staff, who are clearly, like, terrified of him. That being said, you know, the stakes are really high with yeah. the president of the United States. And I think it would almost be an unreasonable expectation for anyone to 100% keep their cool under those circumstances, number one. Number two, it is amazing to me the areas that the media decides to critique like, this is That's the problem you have with Joe Biden? Point. Yeah, this is the one? such a good point. We yeah. played this week them defending right. uh, the view, defending Joe Biden over, like, literally not acknowledging one of his mm. grandchildren. They're willing to go to bat for him over that. But then when it comes to, like, you know, oh, he said some naughty words in the office. Let's do a whole expose. And then even bigger than that, I mean, some of the, the policy choices, the abandonment of key campaign promises, everything from, you know, the PRO Act, minimum wage, public option is just, like, completely disappeared, that doesn't get scrutiny or attention, but this does. So I will say, um, you know, there was this piece in, I think it was Politico about Marianne Williamson mm -hmm. and like, you know, her being, um, having a temper with her aides at times. And part of why that piece annoyed me so much is because I knew that this is how Joe Biden is mm -hmm. behind the scenes. And it was like, you know, anyway, but I do think just like the choice of what the media decides to focus on is probably the biggest story of here, course. more so I, than him losing his temper with his aides. Look, uh, one of the best presidents in modern history was one of the biggest pricks to his staff, Lyndon Baines Johnson, okay? Go read a book if you wanna figure out how he treated them. He also got the Civil Rights Act done. So you ask yourself, which what do you value in terms of your impact? I'm not saying it's a good thing. Like you said, I don't treat people this way, but we're not the president. You know, We're not the people who are literally running the country. So I don't know. I, think that uh, a lot of us is just a little bit ridiculous in terms of the personal, you know, uh, critiques, as you said. Uh, in terms of the personal critique, the only one I think that's really valid is one that we discussed on our show this week about Biden ignoring his grandchild. I think that that's actually totally within the realm of, uh, of what's legitimate in all this, whereas this one just seemed, you know, pretty stupid in terms of the way that he acts behind the scenes. They even note, by the way, that he doesn't even have close to as bad of a temper as uh, Bill Clinton did. Bill Clinton had oh. 
volcanic temper in terms of the way he treated his staff. Obama too. Obama was a nasty person. He was one of those people who he would not have the volcanic outburst, mm. but he would undercut you in front of everybody. So if you said something that he thought was stupid, he would be like, let's sit on that. He was like an intellectual bit. bully. More he like, was exactly like that. I, I feel like Trump, you probably, you may be able mm -hmm. to speak to this more. I feel like he's sort of like more passive aggressive where in person, super nice to you and then we'll just like blow you well, up Well, Trump also had a volcanic temper. I personally witnessed him humiliate staff and honestly, it's super uncomfortable. It was very Johnson-esque in terms of what he would do. Uh, can't go into all the details, but he would effectively like call people in and like make them stand up while he questioned them from behind the Oval Office sitting like this with a scowl on his face. And he would kind of make them tap dance a little bit. And he would do this in front of me and in front of other people. Yeah. To basically prove, he'd be like, look at these people. They, you know, he wanted to prove that one guy would come at his beck and call. Mm. So he would press that intercom thing and be like, get so-and-so here in the office. And they would come running in all sweaty. Yeah. And all that. It's like, He's also big on, like I said, like yeah, public it's, humiliation. It's, a, it's big on the, like, the power. And, and look, I mean, I once again believe that this is probably a requirement for the job. John F. Kennedy did this uh, to many of his aides, people who he didn't like and who he didn't respect. He would do big public shows of kind of humiliating him in front. I can think of an example almost from every single president, like I said, except for Jimmy Carter. So, you know, maybe it's just a, this is what it takes, I think, to be in the job. And I, you know, I'm not saying it's a good thing, but I do think it is probably intrinsic to the personality type I'll of just the person say, who wants to sit there. I'll just say again, don't condone this type of behavior. However, it is like very low on my list of problems I Agreed. have with Joseph Robinette Biden. Well said. All right. We'll see you guys later. Got some pretty interesting new data that we wanted to dig into. Let's go ahead and put this up on the screen. So a record share of Americans are now living alone. Nearly 30% of American households comprise a single person. That is a record high. If you're looking um, and if you're watching this, you can see the way that the number of people living alone, the percent of one-person households just skyrockets, um, sort of starting in the 50s even, 60s, but it's continued to go up and now we are at record-breaking numbers. There's a lot that contributes to this. Um, the older you are, the yep. more likely you are to be living alone. So partly it's you know an aging population. Partly it's the fact that fewer people are getting married. Um, partly it's the fact that you have more divorces, so you have fewer people who are married at any given time. And I also just think it has become more of a sort of acceptable phenomenon. I mm -hmm. mean, in a lot of ways, our society is less doing things together in the real world, um, and apparently that includes cohabitating. So I support people having individual ability to pursue like what they want to do outside of the strictures of family, because I think that that can be very oppressive. That said, I think we've probably gone too far. And one of the things that you often hear from a lot of people who are elderly and who do end up living alone is, you know, for you know, the lack of a better word, they feel lonely. They yeah. feel like they desire social connection. You know, even what they point to in the report around this is that hum humans are social creatures. And the problem is not living alone per se, it's that living alone is indicative of lower familial ties, of less community. And it's not like, you know, I know many people who live alone who are very, very socially active. These are people who live alone because they need their own space, but they also are out, not every night, 
night, but you know, a couple nights a week, meeting friends, uh, you know, social clubs, trivia night, you know, whatever. But for every one of those people, I know probably five others who live alone and report feeling very socially isolated, being attached only to their job, feeling very atomized, not feeling fulfilled very much in their life. And also you can't ignore cost, you know, really from a lot of this, which is that it is much more cost effective to have like networks of family who are around you, who can help care for your kids, who can, you know, help you in, in whatever circumstance that you that befalls you whenever you're with people. Even when yeah. you're younger and you're with roommates, there's a real kind of community aspect that happens, especially when none of you are making all that much money and you're trying to figure out like who you are and what to do in life. I think those are important things. So I don't know. I, I think it's sad um, because I don't think old people, you know, many old people don't want to live alone. They just kind of end up living alone. And yeah. then many young people also, they don't want to live alone, but, you know, sometimes it's the only way to make something work. So anyway, I, I think I think things have moved in a bad direction. It is interesting. So at younger ages, it's men who are more likely to live alone. At older ages, it's women who are more mm-hmm. likely to live alone. They talked to a number of researchers in the field of basically like loneliness, which I do think is a really um, under-discussed problem in America where we have all of these like social media connections, but we're lonelier than ever. Um, but they said there are, there are different ways of living alone, right? You live by yourself, but you have super active social life and you're out and about and maybe you live in a city and those connections are easy and you have a, a big network of friends and family or constantly over or you're over at their places. That's one thing. Another thing is, you know, you live potentially more in a rural area and living alone means that you really are alone. And, you know, all the research says that this isn't good for people. Like, Mm -hmm. we are social creatures. We are not meant to just be solitary all the time. And, uh, you know, it's also different personality ranges. Some people are more introverted. They can handle that psychologically better than people who tend towards the extroverted end of the spectrum. But, you know, we really have moved away. And the way that our cities and suburbs in particular are even constructed make it so that um, there are barriers to being together in person and instead we're fed this sort of like fake social interactions that end up not providing the you know real world benefits that actual in-person relationships uh, help to create. So I do think that this is contributing to some of the issues that we have with loneliness in society. Oh, there's no question. I mean, this is why, I mean, I've taken some flack for this, but part of why I'm like, I'm not really for 100% work from home because, and especially for really young people, because I think that, and I'm not saying this is a good thing, but the you know, it's a very key way to meet people, to meet friends, to be involved, especially post-college for a lot of people, to uh, have relationships and develop a new life. And, you know, work from home, I think, is great for people who are well-established, for 100% work from home, who are well-established in their career and they don't have problems with any of that. But I've personally seen a lot of people who kind of suffer from that. And, like, look, I'm for flexibility. And if that's what you want to do, I think that's, you know, go for it. But I am, I've seen a trend towards um, some atomization at much younger ages, which I, I really think is not good. I, and I don't know how to fix that. You know, I don't know. There's no work solution. To that. There's no government solution even really to that. But sociologically, it obviously does have a lot of problems. Well, maybe um, Elon Musk can get together with the other tech oligarchs and destroy all of the social media platforms, not just Twitter. And that may actually be very healthy and beneficial for us. Ah, you might be right. <laughs> you, der- you definitely might be right. All right. We'll see you guys later. You'll be surprised to learn that CNN is gatekeeping against Cornell West's presidential run. I know that, again, it's, it's shocking. We've never seen this treatment before from the media towards populist candidates, but let's start by rolling this clip here. I think a bigger problem for them, or as big, is Cornell West. Yeah. He is running um, as a Green Party candidate, and uh, 
we can look back to 2016 to uh, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, and well, Palestine. Let's let's running. let's actually do just sure. just that. And those um, numbers tell the story. They really do. I mean, the margin on the right there, the right of the screen, that's Trump's margin, and Jill Stein's margin in the green. It, it, it look at Michigan. I mean, 51,000 votes. Trump won by 10,000 votes. That's that's a big uh, potential difference maker. Without question. And everything is different, of course. A lot of that Jill Stein vote was a hangover from the Bernie Sanders yeah. uh, primary fight with Hillary Clinton. So that has been a done away with. Bernie Sanders is now very supportive of this president, and he has been. But uh, I think the bigger issue, other than in Hill Tables, is Cornell West. And what is he going to do on the campaign trail? But again, uh, the a lot of questions about who's behind, uh, the funding behind these. And what is a unique ticket mean is that joe manchin maybe is it the larry hogan maybe uh or the, some, yeah or some combination of the two. Uh, i mean it's a worry for the white house and it will continue to be probably for the next year i think he's right to say democrats should be worried that cornell west could play spoiler but again the just disrespect for voters seeping through in that tone i think crystal and i talked about this a couple of weeks ago uh, what the media continues to not understand is that for some folks saying a vote for cornell west or a vote for jill stein is a vote for hillary clinton or a vote is a vote for Trump or a vote for, you know, Ron DeSantis or whomever it is, for some people, they're like, that is absolutely accurate. Can tell, like, tell me that more. Like, I understand it. What you don't understand is I think Hillary Clinton is just as bad as Donald Trump, or I think that Joe Biden is just as bad as Donald Trump. And they continue to have absolutely no respect for that point of view, even though I think it's entirely reasonable we could have a debate over it. But, um, you know, if, if you're not privileged enough to walk the Tony Halls of CNN newsrooms, that might be more obvious to you. Right. And there's a lot going on in that clip. And so they start by the conversation talking about no labels, which is compared to the Green Party, uh, a well-financed organization. They, they, uh, th this is a dark money group, basically, uh, that claims to have raised some $70 million dollars in order to get on the ballot in all 50 states uh, and recruit a Joe right. Manchin type. And right. Joe Manchin has not ruled out whether or not he will accept this invitation to run. Sort of a Ross Perot type thing. Right, right, except it would be financed by uh, you know, private equity goons yeah. and hedge funders from around the country rather than kind of self-financed right. by, by Ross, Ross Perot, uh, which I feel like the American population is much cooler with somebody like a Ross Perot, uh, kind of self-financing, because mm -hmm. then he's not bought by anybody. Uh, but if your campaign is literally financed by dark money groups, mostly funded uh, by a variety of different moguls, but uh, you know, primarily from the kind of private equity and hedge fund world, yes. like, get, <laughs> sorry. Uh, and what that does seem to be aimed to do is to hurt Democrats and, and help Trump, uh, because the, the they're, mo they're more likely to draw from, uh, they're more likely to draw from Biden, no labels is. Yeah, and that's where you get the 92 Perot dynamic in that it, it's usually like with Jill Stein from the other direction or Ralph Nader yeah. from the other and direction. And per Perot arguably drew many more from H.W. Bush. Is that is that kind of the way that the right understands this, that Clinton, yes. that Clinton benefited from Perot being in the race? Absolutely, and where this again gets interesting is that 
a no-labels candidate could pull from Democrats in those key suburban areas in swing states, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania. You heard them actually mentioning that, but when you look at where Democrats feel, is there, it's, it's there like, what's the 2004 version of like the Ohio soccer moms? Like that's what they, yeah. they're actually still, you know, worried about the Ohio soccer moms. And that's why they, you know, make particular decisions when it comes to salt deductions or when it comes to whatever else. Um, I don't think Ohio's, Ohio is an assault stake, but you know what I'm talking about, that sort of like uh, upper middle class, educated suburban family. That's where Democrats feel is they're against Donald Trump and against what they see as like extreme mega Republicans in general. That's their key demographic. And you could see a Joe Manchin coming in and playing on you know all of the Democratic Party support for things like Medicare for all and picking away key voters or you know, b being soft on crime, like kicking, picking away key voters in states like that, um, it, it could genuinely be a problem for them, especially if you have Cornell West also in the game picking off leftists in the same way Jill Stein did, like real leftists in the same way Jill Stein did. Uh, the math wouldn't be great for Democrats in that situation, but that should mean that they put forward better candidates that don't force these thir third party bids because nobody trusts the DNC. Right. And so then, then it comes to uh, Cornell West, who uh, initially launched with the people movement for a people's party, uh, was kind of driven away by all the drama around that, and the, uh, probably also the fact that they don't really have ballot access anywhere, mm -hmm. or maybe maybe they have it somewhere, but they don't have it all all across the country. So now he's running. He could still lose the Green Party nomination. Green Party's hilarious. You never know. Yes. <laughs> he's got to fight for that. But let's assume that he wins uh, the the Green Party nomination and is on the ballot in in key in key swing states. Then then it comes down to the question of do you vote for the person you know whose values you uh, you support, uh, or do you vote pragmatically between the two people who are most likely to to win? And then there's a third argument that uh, our, our friend over at, at Rising, Brown Joy Gray, makes, which is that there's actually a pragmatic way to vote third party, which is that if you threaten to withhold your votes from the Democratic Party, uh, that then they're going to do things to kind of win your vote over. Absolutely. The problem for That me, happened with Jill yeah. Stein, by the way. Well, the problem for me with that argument, well, and I want to hear what you, what you mean by that, is that that has, that has to be a collective organizational decision because you have to have somebody who can negotiate these terms. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, like who, who, is, like who, who are the we that you're negotiating on behalf of and talk, talking to. Who, who can go to Biden and say, look, if you ignore the Supreme Court and do complete student debt cancellation, we will vote for you. Who's the we yeah. and who's the you? Like who gets to sit down in that room? Because if he announced that he was going to do that now, uh, you would have an enormous number of Cornell West supporters who'd say, BS, I don't believe it. Mm -hmm. He's a fraud. Mm -hmm. And and I know this because in, in you know in 2000 I was a Nader supporter. <laughs> and there was absolutely nothing Al Gore could have told me. Right. That would have changed my mind on that. Right. Everything he said I, was just a complete lie. If you go back and watch his 2000 convention speech, it was it was just a, an anti-corporate screed. Yeah. Which uh great, good for him. But like I watched that and I was like this is cynical nonsense coming from yeah. get, you're trying to you're lying to me. None of, none of this means a word to me. Yeah. Like this is all, this is all lies. Uh, and so I think so many people are in that place that, that there's nothing Biden can say that's gonna change their mind. Absolutely. There's the things that Biden perhaps could have done, but he didn't. Now they, have, they don't have the house, so there's nothing they can do.
right. between then and now. So what did you mean by Jill Stein, though? Oh, well, I, I meant basically that because so many Bernie Sanders supporters ended up voting for Jill Stein or even staying home, but like since for the purposes of this conversation voted for, for Jill Stein, um, Democrats, the field was completely different. There's like this great McClatchy analysis of Hillary Clinton's platform in 2016 versus Joe Biden's in 2020. And Biden's was arguably the most moderate of all of the major candidates that ran for the Democratic nomination that year. They said it was really far to the left, oh, even sure. compared to Hillary Clinton's yes. in 2016. That's McClatchy. And I agree. I think it's it's obvious that he ran way further to the left. And again, all of these candidates, like so-called moderates, uh, start Kamala Harris embracing Medicare for mm -hmm. all, et cetera, et cetera. Whether or not people think those are sincere concessions, they're absolutely concessions because Bernie Sanders and then downstream of Bernie Sanders, Jill Stein, the fact that so many Bernie Sanders supporters were so upset by Hillary Clinton that they then went to vote for Jill Stein, I think that was a huge wake-up call for the Democratic Party. And again, people may look at the way Biden has governed and say it was all insincere, and that's where they would argue Brianna's argument falls apart. Like, maybe you'll get superficial concessions. But I don't think, from the perspective of the left, that having all of those candidates come out for free community college, Medicare for all, et cetera, et cetera, I actually think that puts them in a really difficult position when Democrats do have governing power uh, to make good on those promises. And it might not be the next presidential administration, but down the road, that Overton window has shifted for good. But I think the phenomenon you're describing of the of the Democratic Party moving to the left uh, since 2016 actually makes the opposite case, which Ooh. is which is that working in primaries is effective. Like to, primaries to, over generals. Right. To, to, to me that it was the Bernie Sanders campaign. It was you know, that and and then uh, the, the second Bernie Sanders campaign uh, that is what convinced people like Kamala Harris. I don't think Kamala uh, gave a rip about Jill Stein. Um, uh, when she decided to endorse Medicare for all. I think Kamala was trying to win the Democratic primary voters mm -hmm. who attached the idea of Medicare for all to the idea that you're a progressive champion. I guess and so that's why, it, like you said, all basically all of them except Biden were pro-Medicare for all. And I don't think that was uh, Jill Stein. I think that was Bernie Sanders. I guess the way I think of it, and you, you would know this better than I do, I just think of it as the, like the Jill Stein losing Ohio, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin in ways that actually really could be tied back to people voting for Jill Stein, who, by the way, may not have voted for Hillary Clinton either way. Um, but if they say all of those Jill Stein voters, they go for Hillary Clinton, blah, blah, blah. Well, I just feel like that has loomed so largely in the Democratic establishment's imagination that it's almost like inextricable from the Bernie thing that like so many people did end up voting for Bernie for, for Jill Stein because um, not and Bernie told them not to do this, but because they were big Bernie supporters and they didn't believe anything either Trump or Hillary were selling. Um, that just like looms so largely in the DNC um, imagination that it it's part of what freaked them out oh. and but part of what freaked candidates out but I say I definitely see what you're saying there but and I think in the end though it was actually a really tiny number and if, if you can you know go back and look at those CNN numbers and you also had a, a, a storm that doesn't exist today and that storm being Hillary Clinton being massively disliked by so many like so many Democratic primary voters and Democratic voters held their nose to vote for her right. uh, in the general and then small numbers. 10, 30, and 50,000 in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan-ish um, uh, voted for Jill Stein, couldn't, couldn't go forward. But also in Wisconsin, you had a huge drop-off of people just not voting, mm -hmm. which, and you know, all of that is, that's on, that's on the Democratic Party and that's, on, and that's on Hillary Clinton. But the other elements of the storm that uh, it existed then that don't exist now is that Trump was uh, a potential 
at that point mm -hmm. rather than a reality. Mm -hmm. Like, and and people didn't think that he was actually going to win. Yeah, that's true. Like, you know, polls had him down, you know, massively. Right. Polls, you know, polling units across the board giving him a, a mine over the Huffington Post gave him like a ninety-five percent chance yep. of losing the election. Right. And so, people, I think, weren't taking him as seriously. So, and I think I bet a bunch of those. Uh, voters in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan who voted for Stein afterwards were like, oops. <laughs> I thought I was just casting a little protest vote. I didn't actually want. So I think some of them or were like- Or people who didn't vote. I think some were like, I think Trump and Clinton are both awful and I don't care that that I uh, gave up my opportunity to vote against Trump by voting for Stein. I don't care. Like yeah. there's lots of those. But I think, I bet there are a bunch who afterwards were like, oof. If I could do it over again, knowing that Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania were going to be close, like they thought those were blue states, blue wall was secure, that they would go actually, they would have go back and vote for, for Hillary. And you saw that because the Green Party was basically non-existent in 2020. Yeah, I was just going to say. And so will having somebody as charismatic uh, and impressive and popular as Cornell West kind of change that calculation? Maybe, but I think, any, I think most people who are going to support West at this point uh, we're not going to vote for Biden anyway. They were just going to not vote. So, yeah. I, although I think that's going to really depend. I mean, but not. But most is most is a lot. But if it moves ten thousand votes yeah. and the election is decided by ten thousand or a thousand or whatever. So yeah, you're right. Like it, even even if ninety percent of West voters wouldn't have voted, right? But the other ten percent would have voted uh, for Biden or whoever the nominee ends up being if he doesn't make it. Um, then that could swing a close election. And if West hits the road hard on Biden's sort of fumbling student loan debt plan going in one direction or the other and, and kicking it to Supreme Court in a way that was predictably going to put people in that uh, crunch, um, if he hits the road hard on other like populist priorities that Biden hasn't been great on, um, that young people in particular are interested in, I, I, could see, I could see some interesting numbers, but again, it, it, it all does depend. All right, and, and for people who are new to politics and aren't following this, like why, why does Europe get to do this, but we don't? You know, Europe and other countries have these parliamentary systems uh, where everybody votes for who they like. If, you, if you're a Green, you're a Liberal Democrat, you're a you're Communist, you're a Democratic Socialist, you're a Christian Democrat, you know, Nationalist, whatever. And then they all get to the Parliament and they form coalitions. And then who, whatever coalition can get a majority, then they... They elect a, a prime minister. It's like how AOC yeah. said in, in right, Europe, yeah. I wouldn't be in the same party as Nancy Pelosi. <laughs> right, yeah, they, then they wouldn't be. There'd yeah. be three different, but then they all get behind the same prime minister. So it's like, careful what you wish for. It's not like uh, you're necessarily gonna get that much more of a pure system. But over here, it's called first past the post. And so Bill Clinton had 43%. Um, Mm -hmm. And then, uh, you know, George H.W. Bush, like whatever, low 40s, high 30s, and then Ross Perot with 19, that 43% wins. Yeah. Uh, and so that's that's just the system we have. People often say, well, what about the Abraham Lincoln and, and the Republican Party? You know, they're a third party and they won. Except, no, they were not actually a third party. The, there were two major parties, the Whigs and the Democrats. Democrats in that election split into two. Uh, you know, a, a super pro-slavery party and a just kind of pro-slavery <laughs> party. And the Whigs disappeared, evaporated. Yeah. Lincoln was a partisan Whig his entire career and clung to the Whig party as a partisan until the very bitter end, uh, until it was completely obvious that it collapsed. 
And then uh, a bunch of parties tried to come up and replace the Whigs. And the Republican Party is the one that managed to do that. You also had a fourth party, the Constitution Party, which was your, your classic, like, moderate senators who were just saying, uh, let's not talk about slavery. Let's just, can we, can we all please just not? And I think they won Tennessee or something maybe around the, you, people can look that up. That was the fourth <laughs> party. Uh, but then, you know, you had all these other ones that were trying to compete, but, it, but the Republicans were a major party immediately, basically. This concludes today's edition of Ryan Grimm rambling about American history. <laughs> anyway. that, was, that was interesting. I yeah. always learn, Ryan. There you go. I always learn. Someone's going to clip that and juxtapose it with another clip, and I know what you're going to do. Don't do it. Which one? You know which one. Oh, that one. <laughs> I really didn't know. <laughs> um, that was Soviet history, though. Yeah, but it also, yeah. we don't need to get into this. <laughs> That's the last thing we need to do right now. Um, Although I, that clip was cut unfairly, and I saw it in a YouTube video recently once again. An again? It, like, oh, fed yeah. it to you or something? Yes. <laughs> Outrageous. So we'll, we'll, we'll wrap on that note, uh, but we'll also obviously continue to follow the Cornell West candidacy very closely, and actually the Green Party nomination, which, as Ryan says, he's really going to have to fight for. It's, a, fight it's for an it. interesting yeah. race. So we'll keep you posted on any developments in the Green Party. So new Axios report uh, detailing something that's kind of key to me, at least in terms of the RFK Jr. campaign. Let's put this up on the screen. So apparently his campaign merch is not union made, nor is it U.S. made. Um, let me read you a little bit of this. They say that his team is bucking Democratic Party tradition by selling campaign merchandise and not made in America, not made by union leader. Uh, union labor. They also say the move is out of step with Kennedy's stated commitment to labor unions and along with his anti-vaccination views could complicate his long shot primary challenge of President Biden for generations. A rule for Democratic campaigns has been that as many materials as possible, shirts, stickers, placards, lawn signs, even campaign buses be made by union shops in America as a sign of the party's commitment to labor unions and the working class. Um, it appears that the T-shirts are have a label that says assembled in Honduras. So this is kind of common on the Republican side. They don't typically use union shops. They don't particularly pay attention, even with the Trump campaign that talked a lot about Made in America, even their stuff was made overseas. But for a Democrat, this is really a no-go. And even putting like the convention of it aside, you know, we have merch. We yeah. went out of our way to make sure that it was consistent with our values of being Made in America and being union made, that can be difficult. Although in the campaign space, there are all kinds of vendors mm -hmm. who do this work. So it just shows me like, if you're really committed to unions, number one, you need to have a plan about that, which we asked him about and he didn't have a lot to say about. But number two, like this is a basic gimme. He's got to prompt his staff in order to fix this. Uh, my I, my theory most likely is that they were somebody inexperienced or whatever. And they yeah. said, just set up merch and they didn't you know think uh, all that much about it. But yeah, as you said, if you care, which we cared a lot, you know, and I think people should know, it's a pain in the ass. Uh, and I'm, this is not a knock. I'm not saying you still shouldn't do it, but it's cheaper and easier for a reason to make stuff in China. We could make tons more money off of our merchandise if we were willing to do that, and it would be vastly cheaper, easier shipping and all of that to you. But because we believe in Made in America and Union Made, well, we have had to go in a different direction, and that's what a lot of Democratic candidates have done before. I've seen some Republican candidates do it as well, and I think that's the right thing to do. You know, just because economy of scale is easier to get something made in China or Honduras or whatever, that doesn't mean that's what you should do. So again, my theory on this is just that they were like, go with the easiest option in yeah. order to spin up, but 
this is an opportunity where do the work, man. Like if you think that you, if you do care, then you should change it. Yeah, really I should. mean, come on, dude. You're yeah. Kennedy. Yeah, You've been exactly. enmeshed in yes. Democratic politics your entire life. Your campaign manager is Dennis Kucinich. Mm -hmm. who, oh, that's, uh, who, that's a good know, point. Yeah, that's a good point. Has to know yeah. about these things yeah. as well. And, you know, we like had to put in a lot of effort to get our stuff made union because, you know, unions have been decimated and there just aren't that many um, shops that are union and American made at this point. But in the campaign world, there's a whole slew of them. Mm. You know, on the Democratic side, there's tons of them. It's not hard, you know, it's not hard to find. It's not hard to figure out. I guess the next test will be, how do they respond to this? Do they care? Do they fix it? Do they address it? Do they apologize? Like, where do they go from here? Because he has tried to make a point of saying, you know, he stands with labor, even though, again, on the substance, there hasn't been a plan laid out of how he would increase union participation. Just to give you one more sense of, you know, how this is significant, how this plays within the Democratic Party, they asked Ray Buckley, who's the chair of the Democratic Party in New Hampshire. And New Hampshire, key, obviously, because the whole rift with Biden is not going to be on the ballot there, but it's still going to be an early state. RFK Jr. has an actual chance to win that state, so this is really key. So the chair of the Democratic Party in New Hampshire says, it's politics 101. I would hope that Kennedy would put human rights above his political aspirations. That's the nicest way I can say that. So we'll see how they respond and if they make this right. Yeah, I'm curious uh, what, what his response should be, because, I mean, I, there, there's no... You can't justify this. It's just you can't an be making goal. stuff in, yeah. in the Honduras, <laughs> especially whenever you're talking about made in America. I mean, we asked him also about unions. Um, he didn't have some specifics on the plan, if I recall, mm -hmm. uh, or on the PRO Act, but he did say he was very supportive of the union way of life. Obviously, his own father had a complicated history, I guess is the nicest way of saying it, mm -hmm. uh, whenever and it came Hoffa, to unions. Some but storied battles. JFK was a very pro-union president. So, yeah. you know, in terms of uh, carrying on the Kennedy legacy, and then Ted Kennedy, of course, was a longtime friend of the unions um, in the actual U.S. Senate. So I think, you know, given what you said uh, for Kennedy's electoral policies, this this is one of those that you absolutely should yeah. know about. Yeah, you got to walk the walk. Right, you have We to. already yeah. got a president and we do. who claims it's hard. to be yeah. pro-union yeah. and is mixed on the topic, Fair let's point. just say. So anyway, we'll see where it goes from here. All right, we'll see you guys later. What is the best way to educate our children? When that question arises, the discussion eventually turns to the issue of school choice. Still support for National School Choice Week advocating for alternative options to public schools such as charter and magnet schools. The use of public money to fund private schools has had its fair share of controversy. Supporters say vouchers help students succeed, but opponents say they siphon away crucial public school resources. A battle is raging on in America's classrooms right now, one that seemingly pivots around giving parents the opportunity to choose between public and private education for their kids. But is there also more to this issue than what meets the eye? of the American form of government is education. For true democracy can exist only among a people prepared from childhood for the responsibilities of citizenship. America's public education system since its inception in the 19th century has been a cornerstone of the American dream and an integral part of the country's cultural fabric. Seen as the great equalizer, it offered a promise of opportunity and upward mobility to all, regardless of economic or social standing. But fast forward to today, the future of education seems to be headed in a vastly different direction.
A historic night at the State House Monday with both House and Senate lawmakers passing a bill to send taxpayer money to some Iowans to pay for private school tuition. Today, just about an hour ago, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signed House Bill 1. The education bill relates to school choice and expanding private school vouchers. Parents who get thousands of dollars back for sending their kids to a private school. The bill giving parents public dollars for private school tuition. The bill would give scholarship money to families who qualify qualify and choose to take their children out of the public school. That's right. Instead of directly funding the public school system, school choice or school voucher programs would allocate those public taxpayer dollars to help parents fund their children's private school tuition should they choose not to attend public school. The first program of its kind was implemented back in 1990, the Milwaukee Parental Choice Program. Fast forward to 2023, 15 states have voucher programs to help parents pay for private school, and such programs have only exploded exponentially in recent months. Just this year, 14 states have passed bills establishing school choice programs or expanding existing ones, and lawmakers in 42 states have introduced bills to establish similar programs. Proponents of such programs, like Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds, who earlier this year okayed allocating taxpayer money to fund private schools in her state, say that it will give parents more choice and improve educational outcomes by fostering competition between public and private schools. It's all about options. It's competition. It's a good thing. Now the question is, do you buy it? I mean, choice, competition, those are all universal ideals shared by almost everybody. But to achieve it by diverting taxpayer dollars from public to private schools, I think it's worthwhile for us to take a peek under the hood. Recently, I spoke with Joshua Cowan, a professor of education policy at Michigan State University who has studied school choice for nearly two decades to help us understand what the data is telling us. The one unambiguous thing that seems to come from all the pro-voucher findings is that parents who use the vouchers appear to be happier with their kids' education. Happy parents, that is a good thing, right? Well, maybe. So vouchers, about three quarters of new voucher users are actually already in private school in the first place. The new part just comes from the source of the funding, the government instead of the parent. According to data from the National Coalition for Public Education, in Arizona, 80% of voucher applicants are from children who have never attended a public school. In New Hampshire, 89% have never attended a public school. In Wisconsin, 75% have never attended a public school. Why is that? Well, the truth is, even if some parents wanted to use a voucher, the reality is, unlike public schools, private schools can decline to admit children for any reason that's not considered a protected characteristic. So yeah, you can be rejected simply for being poor. So in terms of opportunity, it seems to me like the group that benefits the most from school choice programs are parents of existing private school students who now get to enjoy a public subsidy for their children's private school tuition. Of course, parents are more satisfied when something they were footing the bill themselves for up until last year, all of a sudden the government comes and now gives them money for that. That's not that surprising. So the real question then just goes back to, are they delivering what, what the promise is, which is that the academics are better. Unfortunately, study after study confirmed that new students using vouchers to attend private schools leads to lower test scores and worse educational outcomes. How much worse? Some studies show that voucher impacts on a student's educational outcome are equivalent to or sometimes even worse than the learning loss caused by natural disasters and even the COVID-19 pandemic. 
for that smaller percentage, that quarter or 30% or so who kids who do transfer from public to private, their test scores tend to be catastrophic. And the reason for that is that for the most part, these voucher programs prop up what I would call subprime private schools. They're schools that are financially distressed, they're struggling, they might close anyway, often many do. You're not talking about like this pathway to elite private school education. Cowan cites Wisconsin as an example, as 41% of voucher schools there have closed since the program's inception in 1990. And that includes the large number of pop-up schools opening just to cash in on the new voucher payout. For those pop-up schools, average survival time is just four years before their doors close for good. But what about competition? It is true that we've seen small and really, really tiny, but real test score improvements in the public school side when uh, these voucher programs expand. And, and the reason for that is that um, you find those positive effects mostly concentrated in low-income communities, communities of color, um, vulnerable communities, generally speaking, historically marginalized communities. And what's happening is basically when you pit these vulnerable communities against each other to compare, compete for scarce dollars, you do see some slight uptick in scores. That sounds awfully close to an educational Hunger Games type situation, if I can editorialize a little bit. Poor kids battling it out in public schools, test scores falling off a cliff for those children who transferred with a voucher to a subprime private school and the children who are already in elite private schools are sounding like they're even better off. The debate's really settled about whether these things do or don't help kids who use them. I mean, that that's over. We just don't get evidence like that in the research community that's that consistent and that straightforward very often. Usually it's on the one hand or on the other hand. That's mm -hmm. not what vouchers are. It's, it's pretty bad stuff. So then it comes down to what's the idea. Mm, what is the idea here? Well, to fully understand the true motivations behind the push for school choice, we have to go back nearly three quarters of a century to 1954, Brown versus Board of Education, in which the Supreme Court unanimously ruled racial segregation in public schools to be unconstitutional. And almost immediately thereafter, attacks against the public school system began to germinate among certain elite circles. The state of schooling, elementary, secondary, higher schooling, in the United States is deplorable. This man is famed economist Milton Friedman. Yes, the same Milton Friedman who in 1970 proclaimed in the New York Times that the social responsibility of business is to increase its profits. The god of shareholder primacy, Friedman penned the gospel on private education a decade and a half earlier in 1955, perhaps not coincidentally just a few months after the Brown v. Board ruling in an essay called The Role of Government in Education in which he advocated for governments to use school vouchers as a means to stimulate competition in the education system. Friedman's paper was published in 1955. That was just a few months after Brown versus Board of Education. The reason that's relevant today is Friedman's idea was very quickly latched onto by segregationists, particularly in Virginia and in Texas, as kind of what they saw as something of a race neutral way to uh, avoid the integration orders that came out of Brown versus Board. And that is the cold hard truth. School choice is really nothing more than a coded term used by wealthy, influential individuals and advocacy groups to maintain a segregated education system that disproportionately benefits the affluent and leaves less privileged populations at a disadvantage. It is designed as a mechanism that in effect gives choice to private schools rather than to the parents. If you close all the public schools in your area and you pop up two or three charter schools, what is the choice? You have no choice. 
Maggie Perkins is a former teacher who taught for nearly a decade at both public and private institutions. It's an us versus them situation. And this is my sense of it as a teacher's perspective, that as other groups become more included and have more access and more opportunity is there for them, that their children are getting things taken away from them. It is more about personal values and in a way, resegregation of schools. And so I think it's more based out of fear and less about let's take our money and go spend it on a quality education. I don't think it's about quality. Just the idea of resegregating education at a state or federal level might be kind of a hard sell nowadays. So it is 100% by design that school choice advocacy groups market such programs as, quote, opportunity scholarships or lifeline scholarships. Legacy publications like the Wall Street Journal recently even framed opposition to school choice as the killing of scholarships for poor students in failing schools. So what should we do? What can we do? Because the honest truth is that I sympathize with legitimate critiques of the public school system in America. No doubt the system is in need of serious reform. I mean, we need to address that. We need to make it easier for kids with special needs to learn in public schools. We need to make it easier for kids who are struggling with mental health to, to, to go to public school and learn there. We need to investing in the teacher workforce, right? Like you see bills like my and my governor here and in Minnesota are putting a lot of money behind universal free meals because there's strong evidence that hungry kids at school don't learn as well. Like those are ways to improve learning in the public school community. Many of those issues we've explored right here on this channel together. Administrative bloat diverting critical resources away from classrooms, a manufactured teacher shortage crisis, and other systemic inequalities, they all need to be taken very, very seriously. But ultimately, I have to say this, the solution or the debate over education is fundamentally philosophical, which is to say, do we as a nation believe in a quality public education system that opens its doors to everyone, regardless of their class, creed, color, and we work together to reform that institution? Or do we believe that quality education is something of a privilege, one in which public taxpayer money is turned over to private entities that don't necessarily exist to improve educational outcomes, but rather act as gatekeepers, deciding which children should have access to which type of school? That is all for me this time. What do you think about school choice? Sound off in the comment section below. If you've been enjoying these Beyond the Headlines segments, I would highly encourage you to check out and subscribe to my YouTube channel, 5149 with James Lee. Link will be in the description below. Really appreciate that. And as always, keep on tuning into Breaking Points and thank you so much for your time today. New renderings of the proposed new Titan Stadium were released today. Future home of the Buffalo Bills. about $2.1 billion price tax. Taxpayer dollars towards stadiums. Most people here in the Valley are against using any public money to help fund the proposed stadium. The stadium doesn't seem like it's going to fall down. This is Charles Ebbets. By 1909, he had become the sole owner of the Brooklyn Dodgers, and he wanted to give them a new, modern home. Not like the wooden parks they had been playing in because sometimes those burned down, he decided to build a steel stadium. Ebbets took $750,000 of his own money and paid for this ballpark to be built, Ebbets Field. In 1912, they broke ground, and this stadium by Prospect Park would be the home of the Brooklyn Dodgers. Now in 1951, the commissioner of baseball, this guy Ford Frick, basically said, hey, you know, we bring in all this money for these cities, we create jobs, we're doing these cities a favor by existing, they should reciprocate. 
this is when the cost of building these stadiums really started shifting from the sports franchise to the city that hosts the franchise. So the Dodgers had been playing at Ebbets Field since 1913, and by the 1950s, Walter O'Malley was the owner of the team. By this point, the Dodgers were one of the most profitable teams in baseball. O'Malley wanted to build a new stadium at the Atlantic Yards in Brooklyn, and he began threatening to move to LA if the city didn't acquiesce. Now it's worth noting that moving cities wasn't really a thing at the time. Until 1953, no major league baseball team had moved. The first were the Boston Braves in 1953, who had wanted to leave Boston because they were having trouble building a fan base and couldn't fill their stadium. Plus, Milwaukee gave them a stadium using public money. In 54, the St. Louis Browns became the Baltimore Orioles. 55, the Philly Athletics became the Kansas City Athletics. But officials were unmoved by the Dodgers' threats. As the mayor said, we don't intend to allow ourselves to be blackjacked into helping either the Dodgers or Giants financially. The New York Giants also wanted a new stadium. One congressman said, let the Dodgers move to Los Angeles if the alternative is to succumb to an arrogant demand to spend the taxpayers' money to build a stadium for them in Brooklyn. Plus, the city had already spent $110,000 on studying the proposed site of the new stadium. And a new stadium probably would have meant extensive use of eminent domain to clear the space. This is exactly what happened 50 years later when they started working on the Barclays Center, which is exactly where they had proposed putting a field for the Dodgers. The new Dodger Stadium in LA would also negatively impact residents. And that's where they've been since 1958. But this would mark a new era where professional sports teams would threaten to pull out of cities unless they got a new stadium, which coincides with a new era of public funding for private stadiums. Let's take the NFL as an example. Out of 32 teams, 27 used stadiums that were subsidized by taxpayers. These five teams play in stadiums that were privately funded, but the rest had help from the public. And for the 2026 season, the Titans and the Bills are getting new stadiums entirely, both with the aid of public financing. In the case of the Bills, people fear that they might move to San Diego if they weren't given a new stadium. And San Diego is in need of a team because the Chargers moved from San Diego to LA because they got a new stadium there. But the Bills got their stadium, and New York citizens are going to contribute $1 billion to it. The new Titans stadium is projected to cost $1.2 billion for taxpayers. Psychotically, stadiums are considered to have hit middle age at about 20 years old. So if teams aren't working on acquiring whole new stadiums, they're working on $100 million plus repairs and upgrades. Governor Tony Evers would allocate $290 million from the state's surplus towards upgrades to American Family Field in exchange for the Milwaukee Brewers extending their lease at the stadium through 2043. This is when all the teams moved into their stadiums. And these teams are all set to get these expensive renovations and repairs, some of which will be supported by taxpayers. The Saints actually received $27 million in pandemic aid for their recent renovations but this is all in service to attracting or keeping a team. This is also a thing in lower levels of sports. The early 2000s in New Jersey saw a bunch of minor league baseball stadiums go up. One was Campbell's Field in Camden. It cost taxpayers $18 million. The team that played there was the River Sharks. The River Sharks and Campbell's Field were supposed to revitalize the impoverished city by being the centerpiece of an economic development plan along the edge of the Delaware River. Actually, economic development is always the justification for publicly funding these stadiums. The idea being that if teams are here, as the former commissioner of baseball asserted, 
the local economy gets a boost. But things like naming rights, concessions, ticket sales, all the things that really generate money, there's not really any profit sharing between the team and the host city. In exchange for naming the stadium where the Panthers play Bank of America Stadium, Bank of America is paying the Panthers $140 million. But the state doesn't get any of that. Or take concessions. Stadiums make as much as $2 million per game on concessions, but none of that goes to the city. So the economic boost comes from construction of the stadium, hotel stays, traffic driven to the area. But in reality, decades of academic studies consistently find no discernible positive relationship between sports facilities and local economic development, income growth, or job creation. So it's very unlikely that a sports team is going to boost your local economy, especially if you've made an investment in a team and they decide to leave anyway. In 1995, St. Louis put $280 million into a stadium for the Rams. And when the Rams decided to move to LA, taxpayers still owed more than $100 million in debt on the bonds used to finance the Edward Jones Dome, where the Rams played. There are several examples of taxpayers having to pay for stadiums after the team has stopped using them. The River Sharks, who played at Campbell's Field in Camden, moved to Connecticut. So taxpayers were then on the hook for $1 million to tear the stadium down. The old Giant Stadium, demolished to make way for new Meadowland Stadium, left New Jersey with a debt of $110 million. Seattle's King County had debt over $80 million for the Kingdom, which was raised in 2000. And here's the other thing. Voters don't want to pay for your dumb stadium. Sometimes they do, in the case of the Broncos Stadium, where 51% of voters approve the stadium proposals, but sometimes they don't. San Diego voters overwhelmingly defeated a new downtown stadium plan for the San Diego Chargers. Ballot Measure C in San Diego asked voters whether they wanted to effectively increase the city's hotel room tax rate from 12.5% to 16.5%, with the proceeds helping fund a new $1.8 billion stadium and convention center. They did not, and so the Chargers moved to LA. But often, they aren't given a say at all. For the new Bills and Titans stadiums, voters weren't consulted. However, an after-the-fact poll of New York state voters found that they opposed the Bills deal by a whopping margin of 63% to 24%, with opposition consistent across both parties and all parts of the state. A poll by a Nashville community group of residents of the neighborhood where a new Titans stadium would be built found 90% opposed to taxpayer funding of the project. So if your city is considering paying for a new stadium, it likely won't be the economic windfall they're telling you it will be. Now, maybe that doesn't matter to you. You would vote for the stadium anyway. Either way, the citizenry should probably be allowed to have a say. And regardless of how badly you want that stadium, it should be understood that no major sports team needs subsidies. You're not voting on whether you want to keep a team or improve a stadium you're voting on whether or not to acquiesce to the whims of an extremely wealthy team owner. And that will do it for me. If you found this video interesting, make sure you are subscribed to Breaking Points, of course. Uh, you can also check out my YouTube channel where I talk about media and politics and other interesting things, link in description. Liking and sharing always helps, please do that. Thank you to Breaking Points. Thank you so much for watching and I will see you in the next one. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz, 
this time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.